What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Three Minute Barbell. Uh, so this one goes on for a little bit. We ramble a little bit, <laughs> per usual. Uh, but we get into some good topics, uh, a little bit about my concurrent training in the beginning, and then we kind of segue into some uh, recent powerlifting news. So if nobody's heard by now, which I'm sure everybody has by the time this is releasing, we actually recorded this, I think, the day after uh, this event happened. But um, Dan Griggs hit 1,025 in a full power meet, which is the biggest deadlift that has ever been done in a full power meet that's not supported by gear or anything like that. Um, so we get into a few other things within this meet or then within this uh, podcast episode as well. Uh, kind of like the standardization around things, but uh, feel free to listen in and drop us any, any topics you got guys. That they're like, they're like, why don't, is being recorded. I don't remember what movie that was that they were like, all right, let's make a plan. Why do we even make a plan? Plan, we make a plan, we go in, it all goes to hell, and we do it anyway. And per nope. the ongoing tradition, Dalton is laughing when we press record. As and soon I'm as, yeah, yelling. it never. <laughs> Within the With first a, minute or two. It's like a grenade mug in his crotch. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Is that a black rifle coffee mug? It is. Very nice. I support it. It is. It is very good so but do you actually have black rifle coffee in it oh i do i have nitro brew in it there you go yeah uh so i might be like talking a thousand miles an hour by the end of this but (laughs) yeah yeah, i forgot you are super caffeine sensitive yeah before we get into any kind of the um the list for topics we had dalton you were mentioning that your training this week was going well what were you saying oh yeah so my training since the meet has been phenomenal. Uh, now that I've mentioned that, everything's going to go downhill. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So I have my PT test coming up for my job and everything. So I've got to get ready for that. So right now I've been doing more of a concurrent style training. Uh, so a lot more aerobic conditioning and things like that. Very, it's not a super intensive concurrent training model or anything like that it is literally just consisting of my regular training and then one day of sprinting and then one day of actual aerobic conditioning whether it be some kind of bike or actual jogging i've only got to run a mile and a half so it's nothing that has to be like athlete level nice but it's been going really good so to recap, you do this meet on short notice. The strength is there, but you commit a bunch of technical fouls. And then you proceed to enter into a training block where you do some of the most pristine lifting as far as like technical execution, like beltless pulls at 700, like benching in the low fours, like super clean when uh, I'm seeing the trend here. And that's that's kind of how it goes. Like that, That's the whole purpose of like needs-based training is the yeah, point I'm getting. Exactly. Cause you, you were definitely strong enough. Like you pulled on your last deadlift, like you definitely pulled it. Like it was all the way up. Oh, I pulled it. Yeah. So again, I think part of the reason for that is foot positioning. I don't know if I mentioned that in the, in the podcast recap or anything like that, but since then my foot position has changed within the sumo to allow more of a passive external rotation at the hip. So I don't have to actively try to drive as hard at the hip. And I think that's probably part of what was causing it, that and a lack of actual like internal rotation to get into that position. Or just pull but, on a kabuki bar and that just 
solves everyone's problems. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up at some point. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but like I, it, it, it is suspect. And don't get me wrong, I'm not taking dude. anything away from the lift. Good for him. I'm fucking stoked for him for pulling it a thousand. I'm I'm stoked for him for breaking oh, that God. record. And I'm also genuinely stoked that a raw puller has now kind of put some of the strongman pullers on notice that it's like, dude, you're yeah. not the only ones that can pull into a thousands. We can do and it. We don't and need suits. Do it full power. But at the same time, it does suck. And, it, and I, and I'm not trying to take anything away from it, but it sucks that it's not on the same bar because the fact that that came out, that it was on the Kabuki bar versus the Texas bar does lead me to wonder had, would he have been as successful with the difference in slack pull on the texas bar and i know that like everybody's gonna come out of the fucking woodwork it would have been the same look at his positioning at the 1025 from the showdown versus his positioning on that pull on the kabuki bar because of the extra slack pull he does get more upright now don't get me wrong i did not see enough of his pulls going into this prep that being and i think he did say something that he wasn't aware that he was going to be pulling on the kabuki bar so I will say that it does seem that it was either very fortunate or he had made some corrections to his positioning. So I will allow for that before everybody jumps down my fucking throat. But it's so let's give some concept because, to it, though, uh, yeah. or context. So, yeah. So Dan Griggs in the past, what was it last week? Pulled a thousand twenty five yeah. or a thousand fifty. Was it was, was, was it, it more than that? I think it was more than I that. think it was a thousand twenty five or a thousand forty or something. So he pulls ten over. OK. Put it this way he pulled over a k okay like right. the in the history of powerlifting full power he takes the cake on that like he's the first person to do that now so i'm looking at his um, meet recap and raw. and so danny grigsby uh for his in a full power meet he ended his third deadlift with 1025 okay so, so it was his third one yeah so and the discrepancy that kyle's talking about is the deadlift bar is it's be, yeah. like they use the kabuki bar instead of like what would traditionally be seen as like a texas uh, deadlift bar and the only point that I have to make on that is um, at the at Michael Moreno's meet that he just hosted, they also used a Kabuki bar. Um, like they used like a Kirikote white one too. So like mm-hmm. I've been seeing all sorts of weird stuff pop up. And my only two cents before we get back to Dalton is that I agree with Kyle. That shit does make a difference. The tensile ratings are different. Yep. And so when you're talking about like narrow grip, hook grip pullers who are using these wide stances, like, if you can give them even an extra half inch of slack pull, you're dramatically increasing their, their levers. It's like when, 100%. Kids, like when kids pull with figure eight straps and they can sit the bar in the very tips of their fingers and all of a sudden- yeah, It's not even pull, in their hand anymore. All yeah. of a sudden you can pull 300 pounds more and it's like, oh bro, it's only an inch. Well, yeah, but the mechanical difference in the equation is just massive. So anyway, well, that's yeah, whoever said an inch doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To provide some extra context as well, like, and these guys can attest to it. I did a screenshot of the front position of his deadlift, the thousand three that he failed at the showdown versus the 1025 that he was successful with at this past meet. And he is visibly two to three inches taller in his position. And also he is literally chest completely upright in his position. Now, do I think that there is a very high likelihood that it could have been improvements in his training? Absolutely. But do I think that 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 bars extra slack pull, which, by the way, it's not me. I'm not saying there's extra slack pull in the bar. Everyone who has pulled on this bar from the professional and upper echelons of powerlifting. Oh, I 100 percent agree with that. You can definitely tell there's more there's more slack in that bar than the Texas ever had. 
100 percent. so i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it i'm not taking anything away from it i'm just saying for the sake of comparison it does suck that it's on a different bar because i really wish he would have been able to say fuck you i did it with the same barbell now again not saying there's anything with it and by the way i'm not taking anything away from his pull let me say that a thousand times i'm not taking anything away from his pull what i'm trying to say is is that due to the fact that we have no regulation on the bars which are used in competitions it is very hard to have a direct comparison from competition to competition on a successful pull because there's all these companies making barbells and by the way i was just at the wpo bench bash last weekend having a great conversation with the owner of sportcraft who's making some of the fucking best barbells on the market right now, in my opinion. And we had a huge, great conversation about materials, different blends of steel, the tensile strength, the different flex on the barbell, and the impact which different competitions are having from different barbells being used. People who can regularly squat over a grand in multiply are having issues squatting anything on certain barbells due to the increased whip where these people are, are changing their their blends on their steel so where normally you would have a very solid upright pick is now bouncing like a fucking a basketball on a basketball court and they're shaking to shit before they even get out of the rack case and in point being a texas squat bar issues. i wasn't like, gonna name it but all right let's go ahead and call I, it what it is the, any i mean we're texas being truthful there. that have been made since like 2008 i think was that was what we had decided because he actually knew exactly what i was talking about and he pretty much said that any barbell he's come into contact with that has been produced after 2008 has a serious differential in the amount of flex with significantly less weight on it. I mean, if you have a pre-2007, 2008 Texas squat bar, I mean, it takes six, seven, maybe even 800 pounds to see any flex in it whatsoever. Whereas these newer barbells, you load them up, and if you have anything north of like 550, it's already starting to see a pretty significant curvature. Yeah. I mean, to the point where literally like even I am having to lower my mono hook height because I go to pick and I'm still stuck. And that's huge. And I mean, obviously, you know, everybody listening here, a lot of you are raw guys. But the thing is, is that even raw guys like think about walking out a squat with extra flex in that barbell. It means with every step you take, you're getting more feedback from that barbell. So the less whip you have in that squat bar, the more balanced you can keep your walkout, the more balanced you can keep yourself as like if you're one somebody who starts to quake as they go down. If that barbell doesn't have enough resistance to that that bend, you're going to be shaking like a leaf because you're going to start mildly vibrating. The barbell is going to start vibrating against. And Oh, we may have just lost Kyle. No, I mean, <clears throat> speaking to like the point he's making about different barbells, there are specifications within the Federation's rule books on barbells, but they're generally are not manufacturer specifications. So for example, I think in the USPA, you can use any brand of squat bar you want, provided it falls within certain rules, like 32 millimeter. Uh, there's a length rating, length there's a tensile yeah. rating. Uh, and provided your bar meets that spec, the meat director can use it as his, at his discretion. And so at my last meet, um, it was hosted at Valor Fitness HQ. So they decided they were going to use Valor bars. And I was like, all right, okay. Well, thankfully, I ha I own, I'm literally sitting right next to a Valor deadlift bar. And speaking to Kyle's point, I'm like a, a hook grip sumo puller. I'm a dirty cheater. So 
when I, so when I go to pull on like a, a bare steel Texas power bar, I can make 625 feel easier than 600 on my Valor bar just because of the amount of whip and like, especially the knurling in it. So like how hard I have to grip the bar in comparison to like a really sharply knurled bar, I can just let the weight of the bar lever my thumb into my fingers. And like the, the knurl ensures that it doesn't roll at all in my hand. Um, but with some of these Valor bars, the knurl is fine and there's less whip. So it's like literally 600 feels like 625 on a different bar. Um, when squats get heavy and like Kyle's talking about some of these like older um, Texas squat bars, they're like fucking axles. Like yeah. there, there's nothing at all, like no give, like you can, you can load up whatever you want and put it in a rack and just unrack it. And it, it, there's no flex, no give. Um, and speaking to his point, like some of these Valor squat bars were flexing under like 600 pounds, which I mean, a, a power bar would whip way sooner, especially in the squat. But 600 pounds is definitely a lower threshold for whip than previously where you wouldn't necessarily see that level of whip until you got to like 850, 900. Yeah. So, I mean, the game changing, manufacturers, manufacturers are changing and more to the issue, money is entering the sport. So it brings to mind right now, um, there's a famous meat director. I say famous, like famous within the USPA, uh, Chico Cloyne, and uh, he's doing meats out in the Midwest. And he, for his meets, has Ghost and Kabuki as title sponsors, like, which is super cool because Ghost makes really good top of the line equipment. But I'm going to be honest with you. There's no chance I could ever afford a Ghost combo rack. I, I want to say they start, like combo rack are like what? Five, six thousand dollars. They start at like five grand before shipping yeah. or anything. So like before any customizations or add ons. And so like now, which brings me more to the point of Kabuki being a title sponsor for these meets like in these high level pro meets that he's directing, they're only using these Kabuki bars. And it's like the reason that it behooves Kabuki as a company to make that sponsorship and to give those bars away is because high level competitors are now going to go, shit, I need to get used to the Kabuki squat bar, which does not get stellar reviews from high level competitors. They are not big fans. I got to get used to the Kabuki power bar, which is supposed to be all right. Like very on the power bar is not bad. Yeah, it's yeah. supposed to be very on par with all the rest of the good power bars. And then the Kabuki deadlift bar, which I initially was not hearing good feedback on, but like we said, Danny just pulled 1025 on it. So yeah. I dare say people will be giving the Kabuki deadlift bar a better look at this point. Um, but at what point do high-level competitors start to select meets purely based on the equipment they use? Like... Like, why would, like, let's say I'm Jamal Browner. Why would I go to a USPA meet using a, let's say they are using like an off-brand Valor bar or something. Why would I ever put myself through that when I could go to a meet where they're using a specific barbell that I know will give me the mechanical advantage I'm looking for? And like, speaking to Kyle's point, like if you go to Danny's page and you look at his pull from the showdown, there are direct, there are direct upfront camera angles of both poles and like, just take a screenshot of, of where he is, where he leaves the ground and how much whip is in the bar and do the same thing on his last pull with the Kabuki bar and like, just put them next to each other and you'll go, Oh shit, that Kabuki bar is whipping significantly more. And it's giving him more of that upright advantage that, that he's looking for. So at what yeah. point do people say, okay, well, fuck that. I'm only competing on a Kabuki bar. Like, so if you're a meat director and you're not using Kabuki bars, at what point do you start to put yourself at a disadvantage? Because high level competitors don't want to use anything but the most advantageous stuff. I think even right. then, like looking at it from a political aspect, if you want them to continue sponsoring your meats, like you're going to be using their equipment then. 
Like yes. if they're sponsoring the meet and they're giving you the money and giving you the equipment, but you're saying, Hey, I don't, I'm not going to use your equipment. I'm going to use this, this Texas squat bar instead. Then it's like, why am I coming back then? Like you're playing a political Which, battle at that point too. Something as well. And, and this is, I apologize if you guys covered this while I was out due to my wonderful power outage that I just experienced. Um, the, I'm not trying to say there's anything against the barbell. Like that being like, I'm, I'm glad to see that we're seeing these innovations in, in materials being used on the barbells. And I think that's awesome. What I'm trying to say is, is that how do you measure a, a record set on one barbell against another record? So are we going to start seeing an asterisk added onto things that this was done with X and X barbell? You know what I mean? Because I had actually even asked this question back when I started using 30 kilo barbells in the APF. Because 30 kilo barbells allow for a stronger pick and a much stronger position as long as you're used to using them. And the thing that I have a question of is how do you measure a squat, you know, on a 30 kilo barbell against a squat that's done on a 20 kilo barbell, which we all know is dog shit squat with. But at the same (laughs) time, like, how do you do that? Do you know what I mean? And that's actually something that that I was talking about with I can't remember who it was. I apologize. But uh, we were comparing the uh the gentleman who competes in the ap or in the uh us uspa every year in single ply i think he goes by vanilla gorilla or something like that they're no, not vanilla gorilla um what the fuck is his name um oh blaine sumner or thank you blaine sumner but i can't remember his instagram handle because realistically nobody listening to this is probably gonna even know who blaine sumner is because very few <laughs> people do they just know the big white dude in a ton of fucking multiply or single ply but they were the question was raised how do you compare blaine sumner in single ply with a, a 20 kilo barbell and the amount of bend that that has to like a Dave Hoff who's in multiply, but has a 30 kilo barbell. And I would argue that they're both great in their own right, but to put them apples to apples is almost impossible because you have a different, you know, you have different inputs there. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, what if you put them into the same stuff? It's like, I mean, you could do that, but you'd have to give them both, equal time to adjust to the other ones whatever it's like so like let's say you know dave went into single ply which would never happen or blaine went into multiply you'd have to give him adequate time to adapt to those that equipment and you don't know if his adaptations would ever you know come up to par in that field because it's a different kind of thing that's the reason why i hate when people are like well what would that multiply guy do raw well that's not fair to say. That's like me walking up to a sumo player and be like, well, what do you pull conventional? That's asinine and we shouldn't do it. But what I'm saying is, is by comparison's sake, it's not easy when you start changing the fucking equipment on people. So now we've got to sit there and say, okay, well, you know, would Jamal have pulled it on that barbell? Do you know what I mean? Okay. I mean, how many guys have, or you had two guys who were going pull for pull at the showdown and they both had an issue with that top thousand three pull. So you go into this new barbell, it's like, all right, yes, Dan was the first one to pull it and good for him. But at the same time, you got to wonder, would they have both pulled it at the showdown had they both been using this other barbell? And that that really opens the door for like, okay, well, how do we fucking balance this out, guys? Because now is everybody going to have it in their goddamn meat recap? Oh, well, I set this PR on the Texas deadlift bar. I set this PR on the Kabuki deadlift bar. I set this PR on a Valor deadlift bar, so on and so forth. Because obviously a lot of people are like, well, well, I pulled this on a stiff bar. And that's okay. But at the same time, are we going to start seeing this where like everybody's going to start like validating how much more they pulled on a different barbell? 
And I just hate that we're opening that door because it's just it's just another added variable that nobody fucking needs to worry about. Steve's rolled his eyes. I'm just gonna laugh every time I see that. If somebody if that starts to happen, I just I quit Instagram. Oh, he's gone. No, like so I'm definitely I'm not rolling my eyes in disagreement with what Kyle's saying. Only that um, if anybody wants to at me and say that Dave Hoff is stronger than Blaine Sumner, we can fucking fight about it in the streets because Blaine <laughs> Sumner is way stronger than Dave Hoff. And I'm sorry that Kyle's not here to get in his fifis about it, but I'll say it for the podcast <laughs> and I'll say it for the spicy clip I'll post on my Instagram tomorrow. Blaine Sumner squatted a thousand fucking pounds in the IPF out of a combo rack, walked that shit out and hit depth in the IPF with it while getting blood tested from WADA consistently for years on end. He's the first one I've ever heard of who put so much weight on his fucking back that he, sh- like, unsupported that he shattered one of his vertebrae. So, like, I, I do have strong opinions about Blaine Sumner, and I think he's one of the most incredible strength athletes ever. Oh, so um, do I. Please I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm 100%, which, by the way, what I, what, I, what I was using, the reason why I was using Blaine Sumner as, as an example was not to, to throw shade or anything like that on him. I'm yeah. trying to say that, that it's not a fair comparison. Right. That would be like so. What I'm saying is, is Dave Hoff is absolutely unequivocally one of, if not the strongest powerlifters of all time, mm-hmm. in multiply. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. not like you can say, okay, well, let's compare him to Hack. Let's compare him to Blaine Sumner. They are mm-hmm. all in different goddamn categories. They can all be the strongest powerlifter all of all time in their fucking own right. And like. So what I'm saying is, is I was using it as a comparison of this is just another fucking element that we're not going to be able to compare. And it's going to cause another fucking issue and another fucking argument for everybody to be like, oh, well, he pulled it on that bar. It's like, fuck you. That's why are we opening this door? So I have a similar point to make about real quick, the the three goats that you just named, Hoff and Multiply, Sumner and Single Ply and Hack and Raw. I think that you can make a strong case that those are the best in their classes ever. And now, now beyond that, that the issue that we're speaking to on the bar already exists somewhat in federations yeah, where, you'll yeah. see, where you'll see guys like, like Joe Sullivan's a big fan of making this point where he's like, I set my world record in the fucking United States powerlifting association. I walked my fucking shit out of a combo and I squatted it in front of their national and international judges to their standard. He said, and then I got some fucking dick face showing up in the WRPF or whatever, doing whatever he wants out of a monolift to whatever standard is being enforced on the day and taking my all-time world record. So you start to see where like a lot of these top guys prior to the announcement of like the USPA pro series, a lot of these top guys were not competing in the USPA anymore because like they could, they felt like some of the rules were, were more advantageous and some of the meets were friendlier to them and some of these other federations. So like when we add the different federations, when we add the different bars, we add the different equipment, we, like we're talking monolith combo rack walkout versus a pick raw single ply multiply i do agree with kyle like we're just creating so many variables that it's like how do we ever make the apples to apples comparison here because this is a competitive literally sport. that's the thing is is that it, which this is the thing that I've, I've i've had a few discussions with and it was a discussion that i had with um the gentleman from sportcraft as well was we are literally commercializing ourselves into division and that, that is like, we are dividing ourselves by everybody. Let's everybody make a barbell. Everybody make this. Everybody make that. And I, and I understand innovation has to come through competition. I get that. 
But at the same time, when everyone is fucking making a goddamn competition barbell, it becomes a thing of now you're just going to have people who only will compete on this bar, who will only compete on that bar. And it is fucking asinine for the sport, in my opinion. Like, I understand that. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, remove, you know, the innovation of new barbells. I get that. But what I'm trying to say is, is that when federations, when the same federation is using multiple different barbells to compete, it becomes a huge issue as to how the hell do you reset a national or a world record in that federation on an even platform? You have to have some kind of, like, to give you an idea, some federations do it by bar shaft diameter. Some do it by bar shaft length, things like that. Different aspects of the barbell that are controlled. But one of them has got to be at some point the whip on which the barbell bends. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a bitch to fucking measure that. But at the same time, like, these are positionary things that, especially in raw lifting, have become hugely divisive at this point. I mean, think about the position you can achieve with a barbell with more whip on it, especially in the deadlift. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, think about how much more upright you can stay in the squat if you have a bar that's not bouncing up and down on you, literally beating your core to a pulp. Like, it does have an effect. And I, I understand that there's only so many controllable variables that we can put into writing. But at the same time, it's like, all right, what are we going to accept as just the, the day? And what are we going to accept as, okay, we need to actually make a rule to avoid this? You so I think I mean? the question I mean, then is, like, how do you standardize this? is really what you're getting at because it's like do you make yeah. it so stringent that only one barbell fits this specific criteria correct you know if you're adding in bar whip you know it can only be x many inches well, well then the thing that bothers it me maybe is valor goes hard. away kabuki goes away texas stays and you know that's the only barbell we can use based on these specifications but or do you take the other route and say we are only going to use x barbell but then you know y and z barbell you know, you piss off those parent companies, you lose meat sponsors at that point. So it becomes. But I, I agree with that. But it also what I'm trying to say is, is that if you're telling me that um, like, so like you go to the USPA meet, you have a gear check, right? And they literally have X and X a gear that passes their standards and they have somebody who tests that. So why the fuck is nobody doing this with barbells? Yeah. You're telling me that you've got a guy that can tell me that I, I you cannot wear those knee sleeves cannot wear those they do not pass our standards okay that's great why is there somebody who's not doing that with barbells and if there is somebody maybe i'm wrong i need to look that up i, I should have i didn't realize we were going to go this far into this today <laughs> so before somebody jumps in my dms and you know cuts my throat or whatever if there is i'm sorry but what i'm saying is it doesn't seem like we have a written standard by which to set barbells on the platform and a great example of this too, and I and I know that I'm bouncing all over the place here, but like when I was at the WPO bench bash last weekend and I was spotting and loading, everybody was commenting about how great it was to have such a stiff bar to do such heavy bench presses with. And that was awesome to me. But the problem that I have with that is, is how many meets are you going to where literally like you've got an eight, 900 pound bench and it's rocking around like a deadlift bar. Yeah. And like, why don't you have a standard in place that says if you're going to have multiply benches, then you need to have a barbell that supports the capacity by which that this actually can happen. Because that's not OK. I mean, like, yeah. how are you going to do that? How are you going to sit there and be like, yes, you can do an 800 pound bench at our meet. But no, we're not going to give you a bar to do it. Like, God, that sounds terrifying. Dude, you understand, like, which obviously 
you you both know and for the audience listening i apologize I, I i do this all the time i talk to them and not to you guys i'm sorry but i have spotted jesus christ two dozen multiply meets at this point they're like beats that involved multiply lifting that f8 barbell from sportcraft is the first barbell i have ever used that was definitively made and truly tested to be a heavyweight bench bar like doing a three-man handoff with it i hand it off for jimmy kolb i hand it off for fucking tony carlito and like when you do a three-man handoff on that and put side spot pressure on it to get it up and out of the rack the barbell literally responds to you when you let off slow to not overshock the lifter when the sides release on that three-man handoff you literally felt the barbell slowly find its position and stay it didn't wobble up and down it didn't anything because sometimes you let off slow on that barbell and it's still bouncing and it's not because you did a shitty three-man handoff it's because that bar was never meant to have 800 plus on it in a bench position and i'm telling you right now that bar was awesome so like from that standpoint i get it i get the innovation i get the competition of barbells but if somebody is not regulating who actually gets to be on the platform there's a problem if everybody wants to make a barbell for the gym great but there should be a fucking process by which that it gets on the platform and there should be a process by which records can be set on the platform with it because if it's an unfair comparison then it becomes in my opinion an unfair advantage to those who have reset records with that barbell i think that's probably the best way that i've made this point thus far is that there should be a barrier to entry once it is in and what it is comparative to in the other barbells. I mean, it makes sense. So you have standardization of equipment across all sports, right? So, yes. I mean, it is a fair point. I can't just make a basketball and go to the NBA and go, can you guys play with this? <laughs> or you can't make a like, deflated um, football and play in the NFL. <laughs> yeah, so. no, I'm not, which again, that's, it's just, there, there has got to be some standardization here because of the, that exact fact is that, and like the funniest thing is, is I know when we started this conversation, when we initially saw that lift, I was like, well, shit, I, I wish I wouldn't have seen that it was on the Kabuki dreadlift bar, but it actually kind of opened my eyes to like, well, how is that fair to him? Because that's almost throwing him in a situation where he as a lifter is now under fire potentially just for using the barbell that was on the platform that day. It's not like he could have walked up and goes, guys, I need you to switch this out for the Texas bar because I'm going to catch a fucking shit ton of hate for this. Yeah. First and foremost, it's not on the lifter. Never is. It's on the meat director. And that's like plain and simple. So that's something we should probably clear up like in this conversation. Yeah, no, which I, I don't think anybody's going to take this as like any no. kind of hate. It's just a question that needs to be asked at some point is how do you standardize the way that these records are set? Steve, what are you going to say? No, I'm looking at the, at the USPA technical rule book right now. And uh, in item 2.2 for the, their bar specifications, like 2.2.3 through 2.210, it like there's there's a standardization on length. It can't be longer than two and a half millimeter. It can't be thicker than 32 millimeter. It can't be thinner than 27. Uh, it can't weigh more than 25 or less than 20. But there's no tensile rating. And like if you become familiar with barbells, especially deadlift bars and squat bars, they have like what are called tensile ratings. And like that's actually like how dense the carbon chain in the steel is. So if I see a barbell that has a high tensile rating, it's like, 
that bar becomes thicker and denser. And then versus like some of these China bars or even like some of the deadlift bars are made that way on purpose where the tensile rating is low enough to allow for bend at the bar in certain ways and under certain like certain positions. So as yeah. these bar manufacturers continue to make, continue to innovate and they continue to find ways to stay within those rules, but make more bendy bars by modifying carbon chains, by using different metal alloys, by using what have you, um, you will see this become an issue. And it's interesting because when the USPA technical rule book, I'm sure was written in its first form back in the day, there probably weren't that many barbell manufacturers. You probably had Buddy Cap and then not many other people making specialty bars. Alico and then maybe a few others. Well, I don't even know if they made specialty bars is what I mean. Like squat bars yeah. and deadlift bars. Like there weren't many companies is what I'm saying. And so it's almost like a problem that wasn't foreseen. But as time goes on and we see more manufacturers with more money start to create these bars that are more expensive. Like I mean, the Kabuki deadlift bar, I want to say it was like 600 bucks when I first saw it. And it's like yep. the issue with, with meat directors accepting that title sponsorship, I don't want to say issue, but when they accept title sponsorship and they start to say, all right, well, we're going to use these bars, you better believe that these pro-level lifters are going, well, God, we got to practice how we play, call Kabuki, order them shits, we need them. So it behooves them to, to give away these bars, to like make these sponsorship and give them away because gyms and high-level competitors are going to say, great, now we got to buy Kabuki bars because USPA Pro is using Kabuki instead of Texas. And it's almost like I doubt it was a problem that was foreseeable back then, but it, it's a problem I only see getting larger as time. Like what happens when Rogue says, okay, fuck it. We definitely want to stop making a shit deadlift bar. Not that their deadlift bar is shit, but it's one of the most shit out of all the ones. No, it's make. dog shit. No, I'm okay, going to yeah. it. It's like, you, can, you can sugarcoat it to you want, but I'm sorry. The <laughs> fact that the goddamn whip on the barbell changes position based off of how much weight is on the barbell, that is a dog shit fucking deadlift bar rogue your bar your deadlift bar sucks and so like what happens when rogue is like fuck it we are one of the richest companies in the fucking game we're gonna invest whatever we gotta invest to make our barbell the most whippy bendy noodly bar that stays within the rules and we're gonna make all these fucking people use it and we're gonna make all these people buy it like i could easily foresee it happening because like why not like why wouldn't they Kabuki's yeah it comes like a Kabuki's at what point do we start just using right elephant bars the mammoth bars, yeah. Like, oh, mammoth bars, yeah. I mean. like for our for our audience in in strongman, this has already happened in strongman. So like the strongman record, if someone's like, oh, I have a strong with a strongman deadlift record, it's like, okay, bud, let's hear the thirty the thirty filters on that. Oh well, it was an axle bar, silver dollar with straps for reps in under a minute, and it's like, okay, bro, that is a deadlift world record. Congratulations, but like. They have the silver dollar record, the the mammoth bar record, the axle bar record, the wagon wheel record, the all time record, which is on a power bar. Like, just right off the top of my head, there are like a dozen meaningful to them because they're all meaningful to them. Strong lift record or strongman records that are all technically deadlift. That's so, like, like me saying I've got six state records, and you know, when I look at open powerlifting, when I apply the filter of male 220 class tested uspa i'm in the top 20 it's like oh you want to start throwing shade cool. oh you want to like, start throwing shade <laughs> bro i i've seen people but i mean it's the same cool. thing though yeah it is where it's like uh, and it and like kyle's saying when we create this division we get to the point where it's like 
okay, let's talk about the deadlift. Let's talk about the deadlift record before the Kabuki bar. Let's talk about it after the Kabuki bar. Let's talk yeah. about it on the stiff bar. Let's talk like, cause there, there will end up being more and more division within that record. Yes. Yeah. And I think to, to go back to your point earlier too, it's like Texas, Texas strength, uh, the Texas bars were probably the only bars being, well, probably not only, but the most prevalent bar being made probably what, 90s or so? So 70s. everyone was using them, 70s. Yeah. 1980. Oh, I have, I have I have the, uh, where is it? There it is, right in the middle. Oh, uh, yeah, 1980. Yeah. <laughs> so back then, that would have been the bar they were using, like, without even saying anything, right? So there was nobody else. There was already a, a standardization based on that. But now that we have, like Kyle said, all these other companies that are popping up. So how do we deal with this then? Like, how do we as a sport and not just federation dependent, but independent of federations fix this? Standardized like, attendance rating. Yeah. That's Maybe that's what opinion. it is then. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a 20,000 tinsel rating. And I don't, I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's, that's just me throwing the words out. So I also like Kyle's example of like, like, so I know the USPA has like technical inspect, like in a technical chair who inspects yeah. everything that's going up for approval. And I only know that because I was recently going down the rabbit hole of the Inzer sleeves, how they came I'm to be approved. my house next week. My dog, so how they came to be approved, who approved them, who inspected them, did they fuck up? Is like I, I really went down that rabbit hole. So there is a guy. He has a yeah. name. He has a position. And so like yep. it would be interesting to see. Obviously, this person can't take a deadlift bar with their bare hands and be like, they can't bend it in half and say, okay, this is appropriate. But I would no, like to, you can't do that. I would like to see. Some, I would like to see a formalized test where we hook some kind of like some kind of system up to the bar, we load it with a thousand pounds and we see at what point does a thousand pounds leave the ground? So at what amount question. of weight? The, the reason why I say that is the reason why I say it's an easy question is you come up with a specific set weight. Let's say it's 900 pounds, right? Whatever yeah. it is, uh, whatever it is, nine, eight, 800 pounds, right? You put 800 pounds in the bar, you put a forklift dead center of the barbell. So it's a controlled yes. touch point. That's you lift up on the barbell and then you measure the distance by which the bar bends from the ground. Yes. And then you literally would just account for the fact that, okay, this bar will bend, you know, X amount of distance. And then you get three test barbells and you make sure you average them out. And then that's it. The accepted average is, you know, three degrees of bend at this barbell weight. And then it's like, okay, so that's it. That's what our accepted standard is for the platform is that whatever deadlift bar you're using, these are the five deadlift bars or six deadlift bars or whatever it is that are approved that have X amount of degree rating on the barbell. And that's it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not guaranteed because obviously, you know, whatever manufacturer differences or defects or how old the barbell is, but at least you've made some effort to control the, the environment on the platform. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it shouldn't be that hard that it's like, well, somebody's going to say, well, what if a meat director can't get that barbell? Okay, well, if there's five approved deadlift bars, then you should be able to get one of the five. Like, I'm not saying there needs to be two, but what I'm saying is, is if you find let's say four barbells that all have the same degree of bend, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least close enough within like, let's say 0.5 degrees difference or whatever the accepted range is. It's like, that would be fair to a meat director is that, listen, you pick one of these five and that's what has to be on the platform. That's it. And then any of these arguments goes away. It's like, there's your five deadlift bars. If you want to submit your deadlift bar for competition, here you go. Or if you want to, you know what I mean? Outfit the whole fucking nation's federation and barbells, there's your contribution to the sport, guys. 
whatever. Yeah. But you, you don't get to make a barbell that's a different bend and then sponsor the meet, and now everybody suddenly gets the fucking barbell. Now, how is that fair? Barbell. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's just not yeah. okay. Yeah, I agree. So, if anybody is still listening after this 30 minute tangent, started off with training. There's not uh, fucking tangent. It's a good fucking, <laughs> it's a good discussion. Like, I, you, no, I it is. God. But For those of you listening, please message Dalton <laughs> to help him understand. We don't need to be on a strict schedule. We need to spend 20 minutes on rest interval. We need to spend oh, 20 no. minutes on accessory work. And then if, God forbid, you go two minutes over, I'm going to fucking murder you. Hey, I'm cutting the lines here, right? You got two minutes and that's it. <laughs> Okay, with, uh, okay, so I think that we've been on this tangent for a while, and I started by yeah. asking Dalton how his training has been going since the meet, and the answer is it's been going exceptionally well. Extremely well right now. Uh, honestly, I think at the end of this block, I'm probably going to go for a 700-pound uh, beltless deadlift, so that's going to be exciting. I, I swear to you, I thought you were going to say another meet. <laughs> you're like, I'm going to end this training block, and then I'm going to jump into a meet. <laughs> Surprise! No. <laughs> Before we can get before we get Kyle in full uh, systolic blood pressure overload by going into uh, <laughs> and you belligerently signing up for short meets, uh, Kyle has also, I think, been doing some switching up of his training lately. How's your training been going, Kyle? I, I'll fuck it. I'll call it what it is. I had a three-week mental breakdown that slowly happened. Um, I am man enough to admit that, that I... Being new to conjugate training, I was not mentally prepared to responsibly deal with the amount of auto-regulation that is involved with a conjugate prep. So for anybody who's not familiar, your ME days are going, your max effort days on a conjugate program are very, very different from your standard programming. They're very rarely percentage-based. They are generally based off of a mixture of RPE, and they're working up to a top triple, to a top double, to a top single, etc. And for my first couple of weeks, I was just fucking killing it. And then I got into reps, and I was still killing it, and I was just going and going and going. But I didn't realize that there was going to be a wall. And... I, when I hit said wall, rather than making the necessary pivot to really adjust to the wraps and everything like that, I kept trying to go through the wall because that's who I am. And then I also did not a lot for the fact that in the gym that I train out of right now, it's not really the environment that's used to that kind of mindset and that kind of and like, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like, it's just not the typical weight and setup that everybody's used to. So when you see somebody miss a hook with 500 pounds, it can get kind of freaky real quick. And I really made a conscious decision that I was making very irresponsible choices for myself and for the people that I was training around. So rather than give up, which is what I almost did three times and I've never pulled out of a prep. I decided to reach out to my coach and say that rather than continuing to beat myself up on this, I was going to switch out of wraps and into sleeves. And for those of you who don't know, which probably all of you, my sleeve squat has not been maxed since February of last year, where I hit my first 600 pound raw squat in sleeves. 
So my percentages and all of my RPE training would be based off of that 600 pound squat rather than a 650 wrap squat. And a lot of the RPE work off of the wrap squats were significantly north of 500, 550, 600 plus. I mean, shit for three weeks in a row, I was over 595 and then some. And it wasn't safe for me because I am not accustomed to handling that regularly. And it wasn't safe for the people around me because a lot of them are not accustomed to spotting that weight frequently. So it was a very irresponsible choice for me. But at the same time, I realized it. I made the, you know, that choice to reach out to him. And I just had my first reset squat night last night, which was in sleeves. And I ended up doing an extra double with 80% of my sleeve squat. And it really showed me one that I needed to change my headspace because it was a successful night. And two, it showed me how much more I have in the tank and sleeves. So I can still have a successful meet on the end of this. Um, on top of that, everybody knows that I have screwed up shoulders and shit from benching like an idiot for years. And I think I may have actually found a pathway to being able to put up a pretty solid 400 plus pound bench in the next uh, few months as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of turning a frown upside down, but uh, I definitely wanted to cover it on here because I don't think a lot of people speak out about what happens when a prep starts to go sideways on you because even the best people in my opinion have these moments, but they don't vocalize them often because it's not easy when you see where you want to be and you're just not there. And I knew that I had the potential to be a 700 pound wrapped squatter by the end of this prep but my mindset was not where it should be to be a 700 pound squatter on the platform. And I knew that regardless of whatever PR I put up in wraps, I would have not been happy with it because it wouldn't, it was not what I was setting out to do. So rather than setting myself up for continued failure and for, for lack of a better description, continued terrible days in the gym, I decided to make the, that change. So Somebody else say something, please, because that shit was dreary so, as fuck. So I'm, uh, I'm much closer. Like Kyle and I train at the same gym. We both train at Recruit Strength, and Dalton lives in fucking Texas or some shit. Like he abandoned us not long ago. So he's out there training with his highfalutin friends, his world record holding friends at their fancy gyms. And uh, so Kyle and I are still at Recruit, like a couple of OGs, and I'm much closer to Kyle's week to week training. And he's right. So I was like, I was observing from the sidelines, this pattern where like the rigorous nature of conjugate training coupled with his very high expectations for himself were creating this brick wall. And Kyle was taking his, uh, his big head and introducing it to the brick wall repeatedly um, because he had these really high expectations for himself. And because the nature of that peak and, and prep, he was not necessarily like he had said, was accustomed to at that time. But in the last week, the, the complete shift in um, training momentum has been massive. And so I also want to take the point that like, for our listeners, if you're eight weeks out or whatever, and you can find your eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever, you're in prep, and you can find ways to like create significant momentum for yourself, even if it's in your head. So like Kyle's feeling good about his squats. He's feeling good about his bench. He's feeling good about his deadlift. Like, that's great. Don't, don't fucking change anything right now. 
like because you've built up this positive momentum in your head, not necessarily Kyle, but I mean, just other, li other lifters listening to this, build up that momentum, like take, take your easy weeks, create some good W's and let that momentum build and push yourself past where you were. Um, and it's been good to see in this last like week or so. He, I mean, he's feeling good about everything. And I am, um, my expectations were never lowered for him. Like he would be like, hey, uh, squats or whatever sucked and I'm shit and I'm going to pull out of the meat. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're still going to do just fine. You're still going to hit a squat PR. It's still going to be awesome. You're just, you're in a lull right now. So to see him come out of that on the other side of with momentum and with like where his headspace is, it's very good to observe also. I think even just saying that, like, you know, Kyle's got so many people in his corner, me and you in the chat, you know, when he is talking about these types of things, when it happened this prep, it's like, hey, look, dude, you're moving better than what you think you are. And yeah. like, not everything is lost. And like, you you even put it in the chat, like, hey, I'm thinking about uh, switching over to sleeves instead of wraps. And we're both like, I mean, why not? If If that's the move you think is the most appropriate, then do it. But I think... I think mindset is something that's often overlooked, especially in the younger training age and just younger age in general of lifters, because it's not something that's, you know, well, it's not the heavy weights or anything like that. So why would I care about it? I'm not, I'm not going to hit a PR off mentality. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you will. You know, yeah, just yeah. like Kyle well, said, like, like, sorry, go ahead. No, my bad. Well, I was going to say is like, what what you were saying about mentality and stuff like you're somebody who will run yourself into the ground for your training because it means that to you right yep. that mentality is going to transfer over to you know fighting through a lift or anything like that like you're not going to give up mentally before you give up physically yeah no and that was another thing was like you like you guys have both seen like i'll, I'll grind through fucking damn near anything as long as i still have fight i'm either blowing myself to shit or i'm gonna finish the goddamn lift and the problem was, was that I had literally had three back-to-back failed ME days. Not failed from the standpoint of actually having a failure. There wasn't actually ever a failure. It was just, I was shooting for a triple, only got a double because of a bad call, whatever, so on yeah. and so forth. So literally, even like before I had that miss, that, that hook miss on what was supposed to literally be a last warm-up, I I was sitting there pre-rolling my wraps going, is it going to be another one of those days? And that's never where my head is going into a lift. Mm -hmm. Like, and that literally told me everything I needed to know. And when I was sitting there reflecting on how did I miss the hook? And that was it. My headspace was shot before I was rolling my wraps. And that's something that I've tried to explain to certain people is they're like, how do you go up to a deadlift or how do you go up to this and whatever? And it's like, you literally, if you're not willing to walk up to the barbell and give everything. And it's just one of those moments where you're like, I'm either putting this up or they're putting me back in the rack in pieces. Yeah. Then if you don't have that mindset going up to the barbell, just pack up your kit and go the fuck home. Like hundred percent. I can't agree with that anymore. You've already fucking, you've, you've already checked out. Well, I already hit this. Like I, I, that is one expression that I literally loathe at a meet is well, I already hit what I wanted for. So, you know, whatever, you know, if I don't get this, like if, if you're happy with your second and you're sending it on your third, then send it on your fucking third. Don't fucking sit there and be like, well, if I don't get this, fuck that. Say that afterwards. You know what I mean? Don't take the goddamn lift away from yourself before you've lost the fucking lift. If you're walking up to the barbell, like 
well, if I don't get this, just don't take the lift. That's it. Literally scratch, walk away, go home, do it another day. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, if you're in your head going, fuck yes, I already hit my shit, and I'm going to go do more. That's awesome. Do it. I'm not saying don't send it when you already have what you want. What I'm saying is if you're already sitting here rationalizing, well, if I don't get this, just go the fuck home. You're not in the right mindset, especially not if it's a huge PR. Go the fuck home. Like, if you're sitting there rationalizing in your head, oh, well, you know, maybe – well, I didn't eat enough today and I didn't get enough sleep and this and that. So if I don't get this, I've got plenty of excuses. Just don't train. Go home. Use all of those excuses to explain to somebody why you went the fuck home. Because if you can't get your head around what the fuck you need to do, you're going to get hurt. Like every 100%. single time I've I've seen somebody have a weird whatever the fuck, it's because they're literally like, well, you know. I'm like, dude, you either need to check your fucking mindset or pack your shit and go home. Anybody who I've ever been close to, like, shit, I'm pretty sure I even said this to Dalton one day. He was like, well, you know, it was a slow day. I'm like, dude, I'm like, you either change your fucking shit right now and go hit your fucking shit, or I would get back in your truck and go the fuck home. Because that mindset has hurt more people in front of me than anything before. And literally, and, and I don't think I've ever told anybody this. But when I had the slap tear actually happen on 451, what went through my head right before I laid down was at least I hit 440 before this. So if I don't get this, it's okay. And then literally, I lackadaisically pressed it up, let my elbows flare to shitville, and then pop, 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 and that's it. And I've had to fight my happy ass all the way back to the fucking 400s. And it's like, that's the reason why I get so fucking upset about this. Hearing people say, oh, well, if I don't, then dude, if you have an if I don't, then mindset, just don't do it. You are literally giving yourself a way out. And if if we know anything about the human body, if you give yourself another way, you're going to fucking do it. Everything follows the path of least resistance. And right now, the path of least resistance is given the fuck up. All right, so and if that I doesn't did. give you some kind of like fiery motivation in your butthole, then uh, I don't know what will. So get up and go out, do something. I don't know. I'm just saying, but... like it doesn't. It takes nothing <laughs> to go up to the barbell with that attitude of just like you know what? hundred percent. My shit. Let's go do this. Don't fucking talk yourself out of it. I'm I'm so over that shit, and I hear it so often, especially running platforms. If I see a kid talk, say something to their coach or something like that beforehand, and they're like. Well, you know, I literally will literally like stare at the kid as he comes on the platform and be like, show me something, motherfucker. Let's go. And yeah. that it lights a fire in their eyes. Okay. So I want to touch and- on that, what you just said then, because I think that's an aspect. I say this all the time. It's an aspect of coaching that's missed with skill and stuff. But I think another aspect of that is also knowing your athlete, knowing what makes them tick, motivational yes. interviewing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds so- dumb mindset motivation interviewing and it's something that i am a firm believer i will say this over and over and i'll say it again on probably another episode at some point we can dive into it at some point as well you don't pay a coach for the programming that's not what you pay a coach for you pay a coach for them to find what makes you tick what what are your variables that need to be manipulated to make long-term progress because anybody can make short-term progress like that's it's not what you're paying the coach for. Like none of my athletes are paying me for the programming. They're paying me for the things that I do for them 
as far as like, hey, these are the techniques that we need to work on. This is a cool down technique that's going to help you recover better. And it's going to help you progress more in the long run, right? That way we can handle more weight. That's what you're paying us for. But if you're not, if you don't know what makes yourself tick or your coach doesn't know what makes you tick, like, what are you doing at that point? How do you get fired up for something if you need to get fired up for it? So now let me, let me, I, I do deviate from you on this slightly. And the only reason why, and, and I know you love when we disagree, so I'm not going <laughs> to avoid the disagreement here is let me, let Bring me it. state this. No, no, no. It's, it's not, you understand. It's not an opposition to you. I no, just, just, I've been in, I've seen a lot of different training environments. I've been in a lot of different training environments and I've been in a lot of different like situations. So I have hired coaches for programming. I have hired coaches for their knowledge. I have hired coaches to literally put the brakes on me when I need it. Um, and I'm not going to name names. I'm just not going to. But every coach that I've had has served me right in some fashion. Right, wrong, or indifferent, I have never had a coach that I did not learn something from or literally get the experience from in some way or another. I haven't. And I really can say that. And it's also the fact that I don't think that everything from every person is going to come the same way. No. I don't, I, I, I've seen a lot of people like to give you an idea, like I help people in the gym, not because I want them to be my client, but because I love the training environments that I've been in that have been, my training partners have been just as involved in my lifting as my coach was because I know that coaches aren't always going to be there. You know what I mean? Like, especially if they're an online coach or if you're a part-time in online, part-time in-person coach, I don't think that all of your lifting experience and your lifting instruction should be coming just from the coach because there's shit you're not going to see on a video. There's shit you're not going to see in one session. So even if you are an in-person coach person, what's to say that the session that the coach isn't there that something doesn't come out that's huge and that's pivotal that shouldn't that moment has to be capitalized on and they're just not there for it. So it's like, I do think that you can have a coach for programming, you can have training partners that contribute to it, and then motivational people that can be your handlers at meets. So like where I do agree with you that, you know, a lot of people shouldn't just pay for their coach for the programming. I do understand that. But what I'm saying is, is I do think that that some people can benefit and I should actually say a lot of people can benefit from having multiple influences on them. That being a coach for programming and for, you know, queuing and things like that, training partners who are helping see bad patterns and who are helping add to that queuing. And then also handlers and people who maybe even training partners in a meet who can add to that motivation. My wife is a great example of this because I've been coaching my wife for shit three years now. My wife is not my like number one style of client. The reason why I say that, like if, if my wife was not my wife, it would be very unlikely that she would be my client. Not because of the fact that she's a bad client, but because the motivation that I normally provide is not the motivation that drives well with her. Like when she's in a meet, she's in her corner being social. She's being all of that shit. And she is the least angry lifter ever. Like she is lollipops and rainbows and leave me the fuck alone. She wants to know what's on the barbell, all of that shit. Like she is everything that I'm not, 
but at the same time, I pivot my motivation to be more like that because I did have her get handled by one of my friends at one point and I fucking couldn't stand it because like, not that he made bad calls. He did a great job, but it's just not okay with me that he was handling her and that I wasn't, but I saw what he did for her and I just changed the way that I'd handle her. So that the next time I did, it was more what she needed. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that I'm a bad coach. That just means that at that time, I couldn't see that she didn't need somebody in her face hyping her up. She needed somebody to tell her everything was okay. Like, do you need anything? No? Okay, cool. I'm going to leave you the fuck alone. Like, that's how she is. And, like, the funny thing is, is, like, you probably, you both probably think I'm crazy about this because of the way that I handled you. But, like, watching her need something that I didn't have is the reason that I handle other people the way I do now. Because I will literally try and pick up on the way you need to be handled as we're going. Like, Dalton, you just need a fucking chair to get slapped in the face with all the time. Steve needs to be feel like he's in control the whole time, but have none. Like, literally, I know he's scowling at me right now through this fucking Zoom call. But literally, like, <laughs> if, you just, if you just ask him, hey, what do you think about this? He's like, okay, yeah, no, all right, cool. And then I'm doing something completely different over here. But at the same time, he at least is calm enough now because he's felt like he's had control for a few minutes. Yeah, because I know funny. you're like me. It's funny because um, Kyle was like, he handled me in my last meet. And he was doing a lot of that, like, rah, rah, sunshine handling that he's talking about here. So, like, on my second deadlift, he was like, all right, bud, you really got to show me here. Like, you really got to show me you want a big third. I, I mean, I believe in you. You can do it. And I remember looking at him going, what are you doing right now? And I didn't say anything because we're in the moment. And then we go to the, go to the third and he's like, all right, you got to empty the tank, man. You got to pull with everything. And I'm like, brother, I'm on like, I'm on supplements that literally gas me up and make me angry. Like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't, I don't need the, you can do it talk. I need the, like, you know, like, like Kyle said, like he recognized that I needed to, to kind of be calmed down and feel like I was in control while lessening the things to worry about. But yeah. uh, it's funny because like I could see the shift in, in, in pattern in communication styles like as we went because we had never really spent any time together. That's the thing though, is like mindset and just being in that correct mindset, even knowing that you've done the work, the work is done, you've earned the right to, you know, whatever is on the bar. That is something that's just just as powerful within the sports psychology realm. Yeah. It's a Let very interesting thing. Because you you just hit on a key thing that I brought up one day, and it is, it is a huge concept that I want people to start wrapping their fucking head around. I will never tell someone good luck at a meet ever. Ever. The reason why is it is, in my opinion, the biggest insult you can say to somebody at a powerlifting meet. Because you hear this thing saying, by chance. No, it's not that. It, that's exactly what you actually hit it on the fucking head. It's yeah. the fact that if you're telling me fucking good luck, it means that you have no respect for the over fucking eight weeks worth of work that I've done. If I need fucking luck, that means that my training wasn't worth shit. So I will never, I will say, have a good meet. I will say, go kick some ass. I will say, have a good day. I will say whatever the fuck it is, but I will never fucking say, good luck, man. Good luck, man. Because to me, what I'm saying to you is your training was dog shit. I hope you get lucky. And I know that somebody listening right now is like, why the fuck, man? He's really reaching with that one. <laughs> like, and I get that. But at the same time, His blood think pressure's about high. That for a second. No, I mean, think about it for a second. Is like, if you are saying good luck to somebody for something they have trained for, this isn't a fucking luck sport. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, 
it is in the sense of like, I hope my tendons hold together today. I hope nothing goes wrong. But at the same time, if you have trained for it, those are somewhat controllable variables. So why are you trying to, to sit there and wish me luck? Are you wishing me luck on the uncontrollables? Because yeah, I wish me some fucking luck too. But at the same time, I just don't think it's something that's acceptable as a goddamn good luck, man. Fuck you. Like, that's the immediate thing that comes out of my head when you say that. Like, I've seen your shit. Good luck. Fuck you. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, good luck getting to depth today. Like, eat a dick. Like, no. I'm just no it'll saying. be their meat day. It'll be their meat day. But you see what I'm saying is, like, <laughs> it is – I understand if you're saying, like, I hope you have a good day. That, In my opinion, that expression accounts for the I hope you don't have a catastrophic failure of some kind. Because I know that's how it's quote unquote and unintentionally meant, and you know, it's just meant to give you good vibes or whatever the fuck the cool kids are saying these days. But like, I don't need goddamn good vibes. Like, literally, just shut the fuck up. I appreciate your, you know, your intention, but shut the fuck up. Like, that's I miss definitely when something. Powerlifting meets were fucking just angry men staring at one another for six hours. <laughs> And women, before I get everybody up in a fucking tiz. Angry men and women, and whatever the fuck you identify as, an angry mushroom in the corner. Like, good for you, sunshine. But, like, I just, like, don't get me wrong, like, the camaraderie is awesome. I like the input, but at the same time, I hate this fucking, like, let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya before the meat starts. Like, can we just fucking acknowledge that not everybody in the room is like, oh my god, guys, so glad to be here. Like, yeah, yeah good for it's you, funny sunshine. That you because you have Brittany, who's like your opposite, and then uh, my training partner that I compete with, Hannah, she's the exact same way. No ammonia, no hype, no yelling, no slapping, no, no, no nothing. Like she literally looks like she's checking out at Walmart, going to hit her thirds. And it's like, for me, I could never, like I could never, ever, ever be that way because I, I'm similar to Kyle. I rely a lot on that, like that, that, uh, that aggression side. And it's just, it's wild to see like, like he's saying the different, almost how like how the culture has shifted away from that. Like you, like, like we were speaking in previous episodes, you can't uh, use profanity on the platform. Um, you can't, no blood on the platform. No, no, any of these things that in the past, that was like a staple of powerlifting. Like that was like a, that would be like hockey without fighting. If you went back to well, the 80s. I think the blood the 80s, was more of a high blood pressure thing, but. If you, well, if you went back to the 80s and you were like, all right, no yelling or profanity, they would go, wait, what? <laughs> wait, yeah. what? In the pursuit of these more inclusive, more digestible, more marketable, more profitable meats, we have, um, we've kind of, like Kyle speaking to, we've kind of changed the sport. We've kind of toned it down from some of the things that it necessarily used to be. And I'm not here to say that that's like, I get a bad rap as being like the grumpy old man. Like, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that it is, there is definitely a cultural difference in the way that people conduct themselves and in the way the meets are ran as well. Bro, I, I used to have a shirt that literally was one of the best barbell vendor shirts they ever fucking made. And I'm so upset that I can't fit in it anymore. It said, make powerlifting violent again. <laughs> and I, I'm not trying to dude. it. doesn't have to be angry. It doesn't have to be whatever, but like, even if it's happy violence, I miss the violence of powerlifting. And, and I'm not saying like aggressive, you know, ballistic starts and like everybody's got to do this like violent jerking on the barbell. But like we have fucking calmed it down to this passive tennis like bullshit where people who are showing up to their first meet 
and like as an audience to like, do we clap? Do we are we quiet during? And then meanwhile, you go back to your gym and you've got this fucking like sixty pound girl who's holding the mono hook, screaming at your fucking face, saying you're a fucking pussy before you take this weight. And like it's like, how do we go from training in that to showing up on meet day and they're like, oh my god, start? Fuck you. Like, get up in my grill. Tell me to start whispering in my ear like a secret, you bitch. Like, <laughs> let's go. I will say, like, though, uh, there is something to be said about a calm violence. Like, that's... Dude, controlled chaos. That was my shit back in the day. It was, I yeah. was going to get it tattooed on me, and then one of my friends accidentally stole it and named her entire goddamn coaching practice after it. And I'm like, well, thanks. So, like, I used to be a very, very outward aggressive lifter especially when i was younger (laughs) what (laughs) i said when was that because it damn sure wasn't around me no well that's the thing though it's like over the past year and a half two years i've like very much calmed down on the outside of things it's like but if you were to go into my head as i'm lifting like it is not the same thing i have a much more controlled violence approach to it Mm -hmm. like i look i probably look very calm on the outside and that's there's a reason to that Partly it's because I can't stay awake half the time and I don't want to get too hyped up, but yeah, pretty much every third attempt. I didn't on the last one though. Hey, Uh, at least, you know, while I was holding it, but like a a controlled violence to me, you're going to be a lot better off with that because you can still think within it. And that's kind of the thing I'm getting, getting to is like with the mindset of being able to think while being forceful. Because I think a lot of these younger kids, and I say kids, but even though I'm, I'm not even 30, but these younger people who are competing now, they're getting into this and they're, you know, getting super hyped up, hitting the ammonia, getting back slaps and stuff like that. And they're just, they're losing their minds in the middle of the lift where just everything goes to crap. Because they're scared. Do you want me to blow both of your minds real quick? I have never used ammonia in competition once. Never. Not once. I, I don't get me wrong, like I wish I could find somebody to actively hit me. Because the the times that I have, those have been like the most ridiculous smoke show lifts that I've ever had. But uh which I'm really I, I have high hopes for Alan because I, I watched him hit a lifter in a meet once and I was like, Yes, let's fucking go. I literally the funniest thing is I was watching him hit somebody else and I'm like, This is gonna happen one day. And now I'm coached by him, so it's like, yo, motherfucker, it's on. I remember telling him, like, in the past couple of weeks, I'm like, just so you know, third attempt squat, third attempt deadlift, it's on, motherfucker. If I don't have prints on my back by the time we're done with this day, (laughs) something is wrong. Yeah. But no, I I can't ammonia. But the thing that's funny is, is, like, these kids are burying their nose in the ammonia, and they don't realize that you are literally ending up, like, unintentionally starving yourself of oxygen. So now you're going to go reduce like super high blood pressure, super low oxygen content, and then you're going to pass out. And then they're like, I don't understand why I went out. I never go out in the gym. Well, do you well even from that aspect, though, like even from that aspect, like you're going from a parasympathetic aspect to a sympathetic aspect. Correct. And it's yes, you're not going to be the whole point of the sympathetic nervous system is to put things on autopilot to react like that's the whole point, right? reaction it's not let me think about this and make a decision on this like that's what the parasympathetic side for and this is not a scientific like representation of it there's a whole lot more to it but 
in layman's terms, like sympathetic nervous system, this is your fight system. Parasympathetic is your flight system. So when someone's talking fly, fight or flight, like that's what they're talking about. So if you're in a very sympathetic arousal state, you're not thinking, like you're just doing. Yeah. So like if you're getting to that point where you're so far deep into that state, you're not going to, you're not going to think, okay, well, I need to pack my head as I go. No, you're just going to go and do it. But then you're also having this, I'm going on a tangent now, but this fatigue aspect that's going to come with it. And there's repercussions that come with that. You can't spin, try and spin. I've probably uh, mentioned this in previous episodes, but try and spin the entire time with a meet in an aroused state, in a sympathetic state. Yeah, you're not going to do it I used to make. I used because to make that a lot. you're going to be dead by deadlifts or maybe even bench press. I've seen it. I saw it the last one and I was like, wow, dude, you need to calm down. It's great to get excited and to be, you know, excited for a couple of minutes after a lift, but just sit down and let your, let yourself settle so you can conserve your energy. Like that's still stress. It's mental stress and emotional stress at that point. So like, that's just something to be said about it. Yeah, no, I mean, and just to touch on your point, I mean, my wife legitimately, I think we may have covered this before, so I apologize if we have, but she used to hate being around me at meets because I was angry from fucking 8 a.m. rules to 4.30, we're getting back in the in the vehicle to go home. And I never enjoyed the meet. I never enjoyed my meet because I didn't, I didn't interact with anybody. I didn't anything. And like, I just overhyped myself. So like, don't get me wrong. Like I, I had good meats on it. Like I did, but it, I was so beat up and just so taxed from that, that literally like I, I would find myself looking back on, did I even compete? Like, I don't remember anything. And I wasn't on anything. I wasn't snorting anything. I wasn't even doing anything. And it was just like, I would go nine for nine. And I'd be like, well, shit, I, I don't remember anything. I'd look at the videos and be like, I don't even remember those people being there. And it was just because I was so overhyped that like, I was just fucking psyched out of my mind and I wasn't living. I was just doing. And now like my last meet, I really did a much better job of this, even though I had a fucking sinus infection and an ear infection at the same goddamn time, I was chilling. I was talking to people. And then when it was time to start warming up, that's when I turned it on. And then from warm up to third attempt, I was good to go. And then as soon as third attempt was over, I was like, all right, breathe, calm down, bring it back down, and then reset. Exactly. And it was so much better. So much better. Yeah. Learn how to diaphragmatic breathe, if that's pretty much what we're saying. Yeah, but... no, which I mean, it, I don't even give a fuck if you're fucking meditating or whatever. I'm just saying, like, you don't need to be, like, fucking, like, don't fucking talk to me. I'm going to fucking blah, blah, blah. Like, and the funny thing is now I've really figured out that with my squats, I, I've got to listen to different music with my bench, kind of a mix, doesn't really fucking matter because it's a fucking nap in between the two lifts. But uh, the deadlift is really where my my natural fight mindset comes into play. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, about like motivational interviewing. Like, yeah. You've done that process on yourself unconsciously, whether you realize it or not. You're finding what makes you tick, what makes you, you know, get in the zone for this. And that's, again, as a coach, that's part of your job, in my opinion. Yeah. So, but talking about autopilot and whatnot, I think it's a great segue into like queuing because I don't think 
probably what, five, six weeks out, I'll stop giving cues to people unless it's just something that's outrageously grievous that, you know, Hey, you need to pack your lat or else, you know, you're going to helicopter in the deadlift. And that's just like, you have to fix that. Yeah, no, I, I think you have a great point because Steve and I were talking about this today because I was, um, you're eight weeks out now. I well, I'll be eight weeks out next week. Yeah. Okay. I feel like one of those goddamn pregnant women. I'll be this next week. <laughs> like, no, I'll be eight weeks out next week. But um, part of the reason why I did more than I normally would on a Saturday, which is my unprogrammed, I do whatever the fuck I want day, um, which nobody knows about but me. Thank you, world. Here you go. Surprise. Um, yeah, exactly. Surprise, motherfucker. Um, but I literally wanted to test the the both. I, I wanted to change my bench grip because suicide grip was not for me. So I found a way to hook my thumb thanks to one of my friends that I used to train with, and it's a good happy medium between the two. So that's a quick aside. But I really wanted to try a cue that I had seen um, Trevor Jaffe put up a video about with Seth Albersworth as to getting a better packed position on a conventional deadlift. And I'll just call it is what it is. My deadlift is awesome off the floor, and I, I do have a relatively strong deadlift. But my lockout, it doesn't matter if it's 650 or 720, looks the same. It literally flies off the floor and then grinds its happy way to a finish. Doesn't it's mean like that you I'm hit a wall, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter if I'm out of strength. It doesn't matter anything. But I at least wanted to give this cue a try to change my positioning. And at the end of today, I'm like, you know what? That's it. I'm rolling with it. Because it does me no good to change this five more times before meet day. So right now, I literally told myself that whatever I end this week with, that being queuing, that being setup, that being equipment, so on and so forth, it is literally not going to change for the next eight weeks. Because I know it's going to take me eight weeks to dial all that shit in. Exactly. And another thing that, that we need to address, too, is that just because a, if a queue feels good enough to go with it, roll with it. Because it's going to take time to train that pattern. And something that Steve and I were looking at on the video of my deadlift pull today was that, yes, I was slower off the floor. But the reason I was slower off the floor is because I had to think about it more. So because the top end, which is where I need to fix, is better, then I'm going to go with that fucking cue. Because I know that I'm fast off the floor because I don't have to think about it. So I can't evenly compare a cue that I've been doing for years to a cue that I've been doing for six minutes from a starting position because it's not as ingrained. So it's like if the top end, which is what I need to address is better then train it and give it the chance to take its fucking effect. It's the same way, like changing your bench grip. You know, you don't decide to go back just because you had one hokey shitty session. If it doesn't feel good, then that's fine. Maybe you change it. But if it feels good, but you have a bad day with it, that doesn't mean you throw the whole thing in the toilet. Exactly. The only reason why I changed from false grip was because I put I picked up 365 for the first time to a two board, and I almost pissed myself because the damn thing felt like it was going to fall out of my hands. So I do want to touch on something you said, though, because I think this is something people don't realize. And I've talked about like the Fitz and Posner learning models plenty of times it's a four-step learning model it's you know unconscious unconsciously knowing that you're bad at something consciously knowing you're bad consciously moving towards it and then becoming autonomic with the process right so at any point in time 
especially me as a lifter and as a coach, when it comes to a platform, everything is autonomic. So you're automatically doing whatever you're going to do. I don't care if it's bad, quote unquote, bad technique. Like that's automatic. You're doing it no matter what. Because five, eight weeks out, like, we, like we've been saying right now, I'm not, we're not changing anything unless, you know, something is outrageously wrong. Because by the time you get to the platform, I want you as a lifter and as a coach, I want you to be as set in your path as possible so that you can go out there and not say, well, I have to think about this while I'm on the platform. You've got plenty of other things to worry about. And depending on what kind of lifter you are, if you like the crowd or if you don't, that's an added stress. So if I can take more stress away from you by, you know, making your, your lifting autonomic to you, cool, great. We're going to be set up so much better. And I am talking so much with my hands right now, but they can't see it. Uh, but like, that's the whole point behind it. And to touch on Kyle's point about, you know, using a new cue, it works great one week and the next week and eh, eh, not so great. Or, you know, it sucked. Like you're not really going to know until you go through an entire block or so. Steve, speak up. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, I think when you're talking about queuing, we've been over, I don't know if it was in a podcast or if it was in a coach's meeting where we went over internal versus external queuing and like, coach's what meeting. Look like what it was a coach's meeting. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I can't draw on that previous conversation then. Um, <laughs> I, I've noticed like two schools of queuing, even recently in person, um, you'll have like the, the internal cues where um, I'm queuing an outcome or a process or like an internal thought, something to maybe be cognizant of versus the uh, external cue, which is fucking use your lat, crank your pinky. Uh, what like, those are very external cues. They're very like, and I was at lunch today with a couple lifters and we were discussing, um, we were discussing queuing and its place in prep and how like we're like we're all in agreement with when you're eight weeks out or you're in you're in this meat prep and you're in this zone of trying to drive the desired outcome which is a better performance on the platform more load on the bar because at the end of the day no one gives a shit how you lift it nobody like no one cares if you have the most ugliest usapl flared bench or you have the most pristine tucked corkscrew no one gives a shit they only care how much weight you lift it so we were talking about how it can be dangerous to take, um, it can be dangerous to take a movement pattern that someone's ingrained and is confident and comfortable with and start fucking with it. Because you take yep. something that, well, you take something that they had unconsciously, they had, they had unconscious competency in. So they were autonomic in execution. And now you've taken the lifter and they now have to think through the processes of a movement that they didn't have to think through. And like, this can be appropriate, like in the off season, or this can be appropriate if you're like addressing like a, a workaround for an injury or something. But that was the discussion of like, when is it appropriate versus when is it inappropriate? And yeah. um, I think proximity to the meat, like we're all agreeing with is a huge one. Like when you're in, when like Kyle's saying, when he's in this dedicated meat prep, he's focusing on the outcome. He's not necessarily yeah. focusing on picking apart every video. He's not necessarily focusing on on I'm still gonna pick that shit apart. <laughs> huh? I'm still gonna pick that shit apart. Yeah, I mean, necessarily as focused on making these adjustments, these minute adjustments, week to week to week to week. Yeah, I will make notes off to the side and say, like, 
you know, Hey, this is what we need to work on after the meet, which is, I've done that with clients before. It's like, okay, this is what I'm seeing as we're getting to these heavier and heavier weights. So after this meet, you know, let's work on some, if they're collapsing in the thoracic or something, let's work on some front squats or maybe some SSB and work on getting some thoracic capacity at that point. Yeah. Right. So the one thing that I will say, and, and this is just a minor difference is that I, I will make a change within that meat prep proximity. If I see an equal likelihood that the detriment can be poor if the pattern does not change. So, but I will also make an equal change to the expected load. That being, I will lessen, like I'll lower somebody's concept of where they're going to be at if we need to change the pattern to stay healthy. So yeah. like, Steve, do you mind if I use you as an example just because I just saw this today? No, go ahead. Okay, so to give you an idea, Steve, we, we, we know is a very narrow-handed close grip venture. And because of that narrow-handedness, he has a tendency to let his elbows travel much deeper than the, the pad of the bench, right? And because of that, when you go the opposite direction in the concentric pathway, what do we do to compensate for that? We want to flare, roll the shoulders, and finish that press. So again, it's nothing that Steve, this is a general thing. Anybody who benches in that pattern has that tendency when you get heavy to roll that over. So if I saw somebody who is mid prep and having issues with consistently rolling that shoulder, you, you have to ask yourself the question, do we reduce the amount and introduce a possible pathway to fix that? Or do we run the risk of ruining the platform performance because we have an injury due to this poor pathway? So that's a conversation that I do believe needs to be introduced at the appropriate time by a coach, because you also have to introduce the question of, do you complete the prep running the risk of causing an injury at that point? Because if you start to see that that pathway is leading to detrimental circumstance, you have to at least introduce the, okay, what do we do? You make an assessment at that point, you have a conversation with your athlete and say, well, this is what I'm seeing. This is the, this is the outcome that I see as a possibility. How do you want to address it? Do you want to pull out and we address it and we repeat? Do you want to continue down the current movement pathway and we'll reduce the amount we're reaching for? Or do we address it and then reduce the amount we're reaching for? Because that conversation, at least you have the athletes buy-in at that point of they're aware that their movement pattern could result in a failure. Because if, if the yeah. move, go ahead. Provided go ahead. you're not, you're not nociboing your client. So like, let's say this client is progressing. Let's say they just put 60 pounds on their bench. They're benching sure. pinging free. They're benching with no issues. And then like a, a, either an unsolicited advice from a lifter or from their actual coach comes in and is like, hey, did you know you're going to fucking tear your shoulder? Did you know that you're going to slap tear your labrum? Even though you just added 100 pounds to your bench, you're benching pain free and you're fucking killing it in the gym. You're going to fuck yourself up. And yeah. so like somebody asked me today, they're like, bro, what happened to your bench? Like your confidence is just dog shit. Your load hasn't progressed in six weeks. Like you haven't hit a meaningful single in like literally over a month. And it's yeah. like, I don't know. I just got in my head about it. And it's like, I started making these changes that I, that were appropriate at the time, but it's like, there is a fine line to walk between like, are you actually mitigating injury risk or do you think you're mitigating injury risk? Like, like what, you know, what, it, like, what is the, like, what is the, I guess the criteria for creating those changes? Like, so if you have an athlete who's going towards the meet 
what is the criteria for having that discussion of like, hey, we either need to reduce your goals and change your form or drop out and fix what's happening. Like, what is the, like, where, like, where is that line? No, I agree with you. But the thing, the, the reason why I introduced this this way is because had somebody walked up to me in between 440 and 450 on the bar that day and said, mm-hmm. hey, just so you know, you have a pattern that's going to predispose you to this possible injury. Maybe you need to address this pathway before you press this. I would, I wish somebody would have done that because instead of fighting to be back in the fours right now, I could be shit. Who the fuck knows? But what I'm saying is, is rather than play the what if game, I think the question should be asked. Now don't get me wrong. Do I think that you should say it in a way that you're like, yo, you're going to blow your shit to pieces? No. But at the same time, especially if it's, I don't give a shit if it's a training partner, a a friend, a fucking coach, whatever. If you see the potential for that, I think you're doing that person a disservice to at least ask the question. Now, if they say, yo, back off, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Cool. But if, if they say, please tell me what you see, then I think you're absolutely doing them a disservice to not at least introduce the circumstance. I'm not saying blow their confidence to shit, but at the same time, give them that option. Because at that point, I'm telling you right now, no bullshit today, if someone had at least said something to me about my own bench pathway and could have saved my ability to bench whatever the fuck way I want to later down the road, I would have 110% taken the, the fucking opinion. Because guess what? Everybody came out of the woodwork. Man, you shouldn't have been benching like this. Man, you shouldn't have been done in that. Okay, great, guys. I'm so glad you guys let me blow my shit out before anybody fucking said anything. And hindsight is like 30, like it's, it's more than 2020 at that point. That makes sense. No, no, no. Like I'm, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying. I'm just wondering where, I was wondering what, like where that was. And you have, you explained it just fine. I don't disagree. I don't disagree with what you're saying. I just take a very different approach as all, but like all things in life, there's different approaches to everything. Well, no, and like, I, don't, I think you both know me well enough to know that I'm not going to walk up to somebody and be like, hey, you know you're going to fuck your shit up with that. I'll always ask, hey, are you doing that for a reason? Are you doing this for a reason? Are you doing that for a reason? If somebody can explain it to me, nine times out of ten, I'm going to walk the fuck away and never fucking say a thing. Because one, you may know more than I do. Two, you may know something I don't, very highly likely. And then three, there may be something that predisposes you to that position. That makes so sense. again, it's just, I don't know. Dalton's just quietly sitting in his armchair. <laughs> I'm here. I'm along for the ride. I'm reaching the end of my coffee though. So, but yeah, no, I mean, you both hit a point. It's like, you know, when do you pull, when do you pull these things up and can the athlete handle, you know, being straight with you? Hey, I think we need to pull out. Or is it something where, you know, you say that to an athlete and they're like, eh, piss off. I'm going to do this anyways. I'm going to prove you wrong. So again, the psychology of it is, I keep going back to it, but it is such an important aspect of it. And I think if you're a coach, you should look into the psychology of the human mind and just take a few lessons around that. You know, how do you, how do you bring these things up communication wise, psychology wise, without, like Steve said, deflating somebody's ego or killing them with a nocebo complex or anything like that? There's a, I think there's a, there's a really fine line between it all, but again, like what you were saying, Kyle, you know, at some point you do have to address these things. So when do you address them? 
especially if, if you're that athlete's coach, it's definitely your job to bring that up and address that. Hundred percent, like for sure. Like, and and I would also I would also make the strong point that like um, I, I I make a a literal I go out of my way to not cue and advise athletes who have coaching, especially at my gym. So like at the gym I go to, almost everybody has a coach. And uh, that coach may have a plan, may have things in mind, may have like a thought process that I'm unaware of. And so like, God forbid, I go to any of these other athletes who I know nothing about their plan or their process. And I start saying things to them, like, it could be anything like, oh, why are you, why are you cutting weight? Because like a ton of athletes right now are going down a weight class and some are even going up. And if I go around and I'm like, well, why are you doing that? That doesn't make sense to me. It's like, the immediate response I would hope I get is no, is who the fuck asked you? And like, so I think there's also a line between like, what's your relationship with this person? Um, where are they at in their programming training? And is someone helping them? Cause like, that's another big thing. Like some of the, like myself, I don't have a coach. So I don't have any issue with people giving me their opinion and their feedbacks because like the only person whose plan you're going to conflict with is my own. And I'm the one that makes the decision of whether we take your input or not. So like, but I've seen in my, like, I'll say that, like in my own gym, I make a point of not cueing and advising lifters who have a coach because like, A, there's multiple coaches at Recruit who do things very differently than me. As far as like programming, uh, lifting technique, um, periodization, um, meat prep, cutting, like there's like a lot of different techniques and like, God forbid, I try to shit on someone else's work. You know what I mean? Like, so that's another yeah. thing I try to stay aware of. No, I think After it's a really good segue into uh, PSA. I will point. no longer be helping anyone in the fucking in any gym ever. So, <laughs> no, no, everybody, everybody knows you that you mean well and that you are out for everybody's best interest. But there are, especially you'll see it online. Like you'll see the type of person who will give unsolicited advice, and it's not even well meant. It's always an ego stroke. Like, look at how much I know. Look at how much farther along I am. Like, let me degrade your accomplishment or like your knowledge or whatever. And like, there's a, there's definitely a malicious way to do it. And nobody thinks you're malicious about it. Like at all. Yeah. And it's yeah, a good segue into I'm, a I'm podcast done. topic, like, uh, that you were bringing up, Kyle. It's like, you know, what information online is actually valid and what is detrimental to people, even if it wasn't meant as detrimental. I think a good yeah. example of this is like squat university on Instagram. You know, how many times do they put information out there where it's like, uh, I mean, you know, depending on the aspect of training, yes, that is correct. But for most people who are just a, you know, a general athlete or anything like that, maybe it's not good for them then. Like Dude, if you're talking like specifically, that. go ahead. Sorry, pages like that are legitimately the reason why I stopped trying to push my coaching full time. And it's not because of the fact that I couldn't deal with the input. It's because I could not deal with the amount of unnecessary second guessing that it causes athletes to do. It's like, listen, like, don't get me wrong. Like I, the guy does have good points. The guy does 100%. put out good content. I'm not trying to say anything negative about him, but the problem that I have is he, he is not your coach. And if you think that he can do a better job than me, absolutely. I will sit down with you and explain why we're doing everything that we're doing. And I will explain to you where we're going. And I will address your concern if you have one. But just because you watched a video about how until you squat this with perfect form, you shouldn't be reaching for this, I that that is not a valid concern. And so I, I don't 
Like, I just don't understand the way that, which by the way, everyone makes content these days. I'm very happy for them. And I think that there are a lot of great people making great videos to help people with different aspects of their lifting and also in an attempt to help people both with coaches and without coaches. I literally just said like 10 minutes ago that a video from somebody who I consider to be both a friend and a fellow coach literally helped me cue my deadlift, not because of the fact that my coach couldn't, but it's just because I was like, shit, that actually makes a whole lot of sense. Why the hell yeah. am I going to wait till we have a fail at a meet? Let's throw it in the mix and see if it can help us put up a bigger number. And when I, when I tested it out, shit jibes. So it's like one of those things where it's like, why not? Why wait until we figure it out ourselves? I think but it's understanding that there's a, when people put these videos out, it's, yeah. it is not meant to be as a standardization of movement, right? Mm -mm. It is meant to be, Hey, this is a cue that could help you yep. and keep in mind that it is up to the inter individuality of the person, Correct. big word score to actually take this in and use it appropriately. Maybe you only need a, a single aspect of this. So maybe for you, you know, maybe just centering of the head is all you need. And if you are somebody that pulls with a more rounded back, then, oh, well, like there's plenty of people who pull like that. But understanding that, you know, yeah, I can sit there and I can tell you, don't pull with a kyphotic back. Don't pull, you know, not centered within the spine or anything like that. Yeah, that is a standardization standardization of movement that we have within powerlifting, with, well, within strength training in general. But it's also up to the individual person to determine, is that the correct way for me to pull? Or is this a tool for me? I was giving Steve a moment. And for the record, my back is not more kyphotic with that position. It's less kyphotic. Um, oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying you. I'm just I'm, saying I'm people in general. I'm just fucking with you. I had to lighten it up. It was it was too informational. Um, no, it's just I. So the, the the issue that I have is that, for lack of a better, if you have a coach, then that that would elude to me that you have made essentially a decision to lessen your input in your own training. And what I mean by that is by lessen, I don't mean you have none. I mean that you have literally tried to gain someone else's input because you want it. That does not mean you need the input of every single Tom, Dick, and fucking Harry and Sally, because God forbid we not be inclusive today, in your fucking training. Like, you do not need that many fucking... You ever heard that expression, there's too many fucking chiefs, no Indians? Well, yeah. goddammit, you don't need 75 fucking coaches to get the job done on the platform. All you're going to do is fucking cue yourself right out of a good total. Like, so every time you watch a new queuing video doesn't mean that you're like, hey, let me fucking throw this in. But at the same time, when I've been trying to address an issue for fucking years that, hey, I'm really fast off the floor, but I grind the dick out of my fucking lockout. And this head position is solely to get a better position off the floor. It would be who of me to at least see if it fixes an issue. Because maybe it fucking it saves us the work. But at the same time, it's not like if tomorrow he comes out with another video and he goes, hey, by the way. This one might work too. I'm not going to be like, oh, well, fuck. Let me just change that shit. And like, that's the reason why I hate when people are always like, oh, well, you just changed this. Oh, well, you just changed that. Yeah, I do. I changed a lot of shit. It's the reason why I have a coach so that at the end of the day, I can message him and go, hey, I changed this. What do you think? And that's the reason why I like training around people like Steve, people like Mike, the owner of Recruit Strength, because like, yeah, it feels fine. But just because it feels fine doesn't always mean it's most optimal. Doesn't oh, like training around me. Bitch, you moved to Texas. 
like, like I can't fucking train around you. What the fuck do you want me to do? Send you 65 angles of my taint from fucking across uh, the goddamn country? Yes, yes. I would like that, and I'd also like, you know, an OnlyFans description. And, and plus, yeah, no thank you. I, I can't, you know. um, <laughs> but uh, the, the thing is, plus you're a sumo puller, so I don't want your opinion. Um, but uh, yeah, Steve actually cracked a smile for once. Uh, we actually recovered from the, the when do you throw a cue in. Um, but, uh, no, it's just like, I, I do think there's a time and a place for input into videos, into a training. But by the way, if you aren't like educated in training and you're not educated in powerlifting, and I don't just mean formally, I mean, if you have less than a certain amount of time in the sport and you, you know what I mean? You don't have that, that training age or that formal education or the informal education. Just ask your coach, hey, I saw this video. I think it may be able to help us. What do you think? It no, I don't think there's a coach out there that would be insulted by that. Hey, I saw this. What do you think? They clearly still value your input enough to ask for your, it's not permission necessarily, but to ask for your input on it. And they're trying to help you do your goddamn job. I don't think if you walked up to McDonald's and said, hey, I'd like a number one. Do you mind if I grill it for you? That the fucking McDonald's employees would be like, whoa, dick, back off my shit. They're going to be like, yeah, no, sure. Jump out the car. Grill that shit up. You know what I mean? So it's like if you ask, just provide them that courtesy. Let them provide the courtesy of helping you like your coach should. And then, by the way, if they have a reason to not do it, let them provide that to you. Like Steve said, you don't know their plan. Your friend doesn't know their plan. Your training partner doesn't know their plan. That's the reason why as much as I really, I'm serious, after this whole conversation, I'm just going to quietly go into the gym with like noise-canceling earphones and for the rest of my life. But I always ask if there's an intention first or if there's, hey, have you tried this? Even if we've broken the barrier of no, there's no intention, what do you have input on? It's never a, this will fix it. It's like a, hey, have you tried this? It could help. And the reason why I do that is because I used to be around tons, and I mean fucking tons of people who'd be like, if you bench like this, you'd be fine. Or if you squat like this, you'll be fine. Well, that's not how it works, dude. I don't have triple ply canvas underneath my ass. Like, I just can't sit back like that. Well, you're a big dude. You should be wide. That's not true. So, like, I always ask, hey, like, you know, like, go up to Steve. Hey, do you squat like this for a reason? Yeah, I was involved in this. Oh, okay, cool. I'm not going to be like, hey, let's change your whole squat stance setup. And it'd be like, hey, do you have your hands in that position for a certain reason? Well, yeah. Okay, well, have you tried this? Maybe open it up a little bit to gain a better position. And if he goes, yeah, let's try it. And then if I go, how did it feel? And he goes, like, shit, I'm not going to be like, well, just do it more then. I'm going to be like, all right, cool. I appreciate you trying that, but, you know, sorry, it didn't work for you. And I'd walk away. So there's a different way to do it. And there's a different way to do that. And there's even a different way to do it with your coach. You can't sit there and be like, hey, I watched this video. You don't know shit about what you're talking about. It's like, hey, I watched this and I'm interested to see your opinion on it. Let them talk to you. I agree. And maybe they'll say, go ahead. Sorry, go Go ahead. I I agree, especially because we're talking about like like passive information that the lifter has received. So yeah. like, and that, so like for a lifter to say like, Hey, I came across this video and uh, I either want your opinion on it, or I think it maybe could be applicable to me. What do you think? Um, that's, that is a different scenario than what I see sometimes of like, um, 
Hey, I, I know that, uh, I know nobody asked and I know that like, I see it on Instagram, like quite a bit. And I see it on mostly female lifters posts where like other men, especially if they're like higher level competitors or their coaches, like they'll feel comfortable coming in and downplaying either the lifters knowledge or their coaches knowledge. And then giving the unsolicited advice of like, this is what you need to do. And yep. so like from, to the lifter who's receiving that new information, coming across it passively on Instagram is one thing. But having a more accomplished lifter come to you and say that you're wrong or that your coach is wrong or that your process is wrong or that your technique is shit or that whatever. I mean, it could be almost anything. And, and that the, the effect that that will have on the relationship with the coach and with the confidence moving forward, I think, is totally different. And like you said, there's a way to do it. And you do it appropriately when you're just like, hey, have you considered this? Or like, is there a reason behind and if you, if you just get online for a little bit, you'll see a whole lot of like unsolicited mandatory advice. And it's like that, I want to make a point to the audience that that's totally different than uh, putting out honest, like honest content that people can absorb passively. That's, they're, they're two totally different things. So like, don't be those people on Instagram that like go to like less accomplished lifters pages and tell them all the reason, all their shortcomings, all the reasons why their technique sucks, all the reasons why they're weak. Because like, let's be honest, you're not doing that to help the lifter. You're doing that to help your ego. Like, and I see it all the time online. Like, I don't see it too much in person, but online I see it constantly. And it's Dude, like- I get it all the time in person. You, you understand, like I've literally had people. So like the last time when I, uh, I just brought this up at the beginning of this episode, when I hit that 600 squat for the first time, I had been working towards a 600 in sleeves for like three meets. And by the way, I don't do meets as regularly as you guys. Three meets for me back in the day was three, like there was, it was two years. So it was a meet at the beginning of the year, meet at the end of the year, meet at the beginning of the year. And then the meet at the end of the year, I finally got it. And I remember telling somebody they're like, oh, what did you total? And I was like, well, I got 600 sleeves. And then, you know, I was recovering from this fucking stupid shoulder bullshit. So I was like, I have 600 sleeves, 386 on bench. And I had just pulled 700 for the first time. So I was like six, seven, six, or, or six, 386 and then seven and they were like oh you're on your way then i'm on my way yeah that's like tough. dude i literally remember being so crushed and pissed off all at the same time yeah and that's the reason why dude i don't and like i think it's also because i run platforms i don't give a fuck if you hit 135 if you hit 95 if you hit 995 if it's a pr to you like, if you ask me afterwards, hey, is there anything I can do differently? I'd be like, one, do you have a coach? And then two, here's my input, maybe. But, like, you clearly did something. You put the work in. Why the fuck are you going to devalue all of that person's hard work when you're, if you're allegedly, your goal was to try and help them? Like, the reason why I say things the way that I do is because my actual goal has always been to help. It's the reason why I was super upset when, like, I couldn't take coaching full time because nobody wants a coach that looks like or sounds like me. But at the same time, I love helping and teaching and educating people. It is a huge passion of mine and I do not get to do it enough. And like in the environment that we're in and the environment we've created, you cannot freely share information without huge blowback like this because there's five people doing it that way to the one person who's doing it the right way. And we've lost Steven to just, his phone. Yeah, just do it. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a client who's having Bitcoin issues. And like anybody who knows what I'm talking about <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. So like they're having a hard time with one of their payments. So I'm just, I'm sorry. I am, uh, I am splitting my attention here. 
no, I think this is probably a pretty good place to, to wrap this one up, though. I mean, the last thing I'll end, end with on, on this is a uh, look at like what a coach has done for other people, not just what they've done as a lifter. That's going to be more telltale as to whether or not they're actually able to help you, whether it be yeah, coaching no, or whether it's, you know, technique, videos, whatever. Like, don't just take face value of this guy squats seven, eight, 900 pounds. Like, that doesn't matter. Doesn't make them a good coach. Doesn't make them good at cueing. It makes them good at applying cues, probably, but do your research is basically I'll what I'm that. trying to say. I'll Have more with- than one person. I'll see that with some of these like absolute phenoms. Like they'll be juniors yeah. and they'll be like 21 years old. And it's like, yeah, you just set an all-time world record, but you're on like you're 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 on some of like the most hardcore shit and you're being coached by Josh fucking Bryant. So like like there's no way for me to equate your performance ability with your ability to coach. Like, yeah, hey, you're super young. So like the amount of formal education you can have at like 19 or 20 is not great. Like you're not even old enough to have a master's. I don't even know if you're old enough to have a bachelor's at that point. So well, like quote, I mean, sorry, my bad. I, I thought my bad. So I'm shut up. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm just making the point that like, I do see that quite a bit where like, you'll see this really high performance rate and people will try to use that to justify a coaching service. And yeah. it's like, when you get into it, the training age isn't there. The education isn't there. There's no mentorship. They don't have anybody vouching for them. They don't have any testimonials. And it's like, I know of a lot of 16 year olds who can pull 700 plus. Yeah. I would not trust a single one to coach me, not even one. But at the same well, time, it's not to say that there aren't those guys out there. It's just that they're far and few between. So don't take something as face value. Do the critical thinking behind it. You know, do the research, make a good decision. Okay, and then you have like Steve Denovi. Like, go ahead and look yeah. at PR's performance or at Steve Denovi. He's one of the like most sought after powerlifting coaches in the world. Dude, don't even look like he lifts. Steve, nope. if you're hearing this, brother, you got to get under the barbell because like you would see him and you would look at his performance and say, that's not the coach for me. But yeah. brother, you would be sorely mistaken because people are lined up trying to get that man's coaching. So it's like you can't equate performance and, and coaching. I don't know how we got on that tangent, but we all feel very, <laughs> I don't either, we all feel very similarly about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Kyle, where can they find you? Nowhere. I, I don't exist. Oh, where? The full send exists. The full send initiative doesn't exist. I don't exist. I'm not here. And uh, don't at me for in the gym training anymore after this discussion, because I will be and I'm, I am now a deaf mute. who will be in the <laughs> corner working for eight weeks. Don't at me afterwards still deaf mute status beat him with sticks uh i get a big fucking stick (laughs) grab a log (laughs) (laughs) steve where they can find you uh you can find me on instagram or facebook you can search steve pruitt or uh my instagram handle is at steve's lifts and then i got a link tree in my bio with everything link in bio yeah right all right. Well, if you want to drop some suggestions or anything like that, feel free to use the poll. It's in Spotify. If you want to reach out to any of us with topics, uh, if you want to get to me directly, Dalton underscore MM or ICSN, you can just search that. My business will pop up or you can go to the website. Uh, it'll be linked in the Spotify description below as well. So uh, thanks for listening, guys. That's our episode. <laughs>